0: Okay, that's Definitely, Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together as family. A family that you had ordained from eternity past. A family that has been enjoying lessons given from you from eternity past. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for your mercy your grace and your love and for revealing these things to us in time. Father, we're not worthy, but we are so very grateful for all that you do, especially as adopted children who are now regenerated, born again in Christ Jesus. What an incredible miracle that is, Father, and it's nothing less than a miracle. May we never ever become familiar with it. Thank you. We pray for those in the congregation that are still hurting, Father, that are suffering in one way or another, that your will be done in their lives, of course, but also that you heal them as expeditiously as possible. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that have no hope in the future. And that in your divine providence, you afford us an opportunity to evangelize them and enjoy knowing that we'll have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance and who gets to define it? Part 30, uh, due to the Resurrection Sunday lessons, we had part, obviously the official part was last Sunday, and then we had a review of it, a nice review on Tuesday from Scott. Uh, Due to those lessons we spent this past Thursday catching up where we left off two Thursdays ago, and the Spirit had given us quite a dose of reality as it pertains to our consulting extra-biblical texts, such as devotionals, but not only devotionals, but he seemed to have devotionals in his crosshairs, that's for sure. And what he's been trying to do is set our perspectives straight so that we don't ever stray off course. There's just too many things that are designed from ground up to take you off course, to entice you away from the truth, to mislead you, uh, to distract you. I mean, just think about <clears throat> the sheer number of details outside of these four walls that some of you probably are still thinking about which is a shame but i get it There's they're all just designed to take you away from truth that sets you free and we have to be on guard at every turn because a lot of the distractions have key phrases like jesus or Christian or God on them, on the materials, on the goings on that uh, we encounter in our lives day to day. And so we have to be on guard. uh, And that's why the Bible often uses the term be sober, be on the alert, not just obviously physically be sober because that's dissipation if you're drunk, but also spiritually sober. That's why the Bible uses that term. So, he's been trying, the Spirit's been trying to set our perspective straight so that we we don't stray off course. Um, For example, if our perspective is correct, beginning with humility, we are to live for others. And that's been uh, a main topic that's been woven into our lessons for quite some time now. I would say from the beginning of this ministry, to be honest with you, humility has been um, at the center of no matter what I've been teaching. Uh, Humility, I've often coined it as humility, is the key to the spiritual life. And it's true. Everything begins with humility, for God gives grace to the humble and is opposed to the proud. And so everything we do must be done in humility. And we have scripture that helps us even with this topic of humility, beginning with sort of this litmus test, for lack of a better term. Um, what does true humility look like? How do we know that we're living humbly? Well, Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves that's a perfect litmus test are you living humbly well are you living for others or are you living for yourselves we might rightly take this short statement from the apostle paul as a baseline definition for humility itself this same writer wrote go to romans 13:8 romans 13:8 I just finished reading Romans myself. Um, Wonderful. Such a wonderful book. And once you have the Gospel down pat, it just makes so much sense and it's just so clear what Paul was after and the fight that Paul was fighting. Romans 13.8. So the same writer that wrote, you know, the brief definition for humility, living for others, wrote this, Romans 13, 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, and sensuality not in strife and jealousy but put on that's that Greek word and duo if you recall put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts put on Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts so remember that the flesh always lusts for what is good for itself, what it perceives as um, good for itself. The flesh is sort of a self-feeding entity. So if we're not living for others, then we are not fulfilling the law of love itself. Because if you're loving yourself and the self-life more than others, then you're not humble. And God is opposed to the proud, to the arrogant. So if we're not living for others, then we are not fulfilling the law of love itself. This has been the, let's call it the oh-so-important perspective the Spirit's been giving us. And as we'd suspect, there's real fruit to be born as a result of this, Kind of true humility. Practical fruit. Go to Romans 15.1. Romans 15.1. Well, what about living for others? What, what about being truly humble? Romans 15.1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. It's just too Darn easy to take advantage of weak people. Some people specialize in it. They seek out the weak so that they can take advantage. They find people that are in times of weakness and they draw them down. That's not love, that's self-serving. That's the flesh at its very best, feeding its own lusts. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. That's what it means to live for others. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about what the Spirit's saying here, obviously, and I want you to think with me and reflect on some of this. One of the greatest blessings about living for others is that when you're doing so, there's no more time left to live for self, selfishly, that is. In other words, there's so much time in the day, right? When you preoccupy or your life is dominated by the idea of living for others, well, guess what? There's no time left to do. Live for self. And so you don't even have to actively worry in the strictest sense of not living for self. If you just live for others, you won't live for yourself. And that's one of the great blessings of living for others. There's no there's not enough time in the day left to live for yourself. And so our focus really becomes On living for others, and let what happens, let the chips fall as they may. And what you'd be surprised with is that you're not living for self anymore. It's not a, it's not a wrestling match anymore. With will you just stop it, flesh? Stop trying to live for self. No, live for others. Make that your goal, and you won't have those battles. So one of the great blessings about living for others is that when you're doing so, there's no more time left to live for self. Selfishly, that is. It's almost the same as saying, if there's any light shining, there's no more room for darkness because light always overcomes darkness. If there's any light shining, there's no more room for darkness because light always overcomes darkness. A person who refuses... To humble themselves and, let's say, read their Bibles, preferring to not read it at all, to find out these things, to discover these things for yourselves. Don't just listen to the bald guy, or any pastor for that matter, or any devotional or any extra biblical text. Find out for yourselves what it means to live a godly life. A person who refuses to humble themselves and read their Bibles, preferring not to read it at all, or as the Spirit pointed out recently, preferring to read extra-biblical texts instead, to this person goes the fruit of their dedication to self. For that is what doing such things proves, that a person doesn't want God's guidance. Rather, they prefer their own. Or if they're really lazy, they just prefer to listen to a guy like me or someone else that they found on the internet or on Amazon or wherever they're getting their extra-biblical perspective from. That's called dedication to self up here on the board. Selfishness breeds malcontent. Hands down, hands down, the most miserable people I know are also the most selfish. Hands down. A lot of them put on a good facade. A lot of them put on a good front. They smile. They're outgoing. But deep down, they're miserable. And they're miserable because they haven't gotten out of their own way yet. They're selfish at heart. Selfishness breeds malcontent. God did not regenerate believers in order to live a better life for self. Rather, He gave us new life in Christ to live as Christ did. Imagine that. Imagine that. To be in Christ, and the plan was this new life in Christ is to live as Christ did for others in humility. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And who had more joy than Jesus Christ? No one. And if that's our prototype, then maybe he was on to something. Maybe the Bible teaches us these things for a reason, for a really good reason. And maybe, just maybe, you're miserable. And maybe, just maybe, you're a walking facade because you're selfish. And even this moment in time, you're hearing my voice and you're like, shut up. I don't want to hear this anymore. You don't live my life. Oh, let, hold on. Let me get my violin for you. Your, your life is just so tough compared to everyone else's. Oh, selfish. That's the problem. Selfishness breeds malcontent. God did not regenerate believers. In order to live a better life for self, rather He gave us new life in Christ to live as Christ did for others in humility. Go to Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.13. Every Christian I've ever met loves the idea of being set free. Yeah, there's, you know, the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Awesome! What are you going to do with that freedom? Are you going to destroy your life all over again? What are you going to do with that freedom? Are you going to live selflessly or selfishly? Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. If you want to spin up misery in your life, that's exactly what you do do. And that's loving self more than others, where Paul says right there, do not turn your freedom into opportunities for flesh. In other words, live for yourself, but through love serve one another. Lay down your life for someone else. That's your modus operandi, if you would. And when you do that, you're not going to have time to live for yourself. And that's a very good thing. That's why I don't, you know, the Bible talks about um, complacency and idle hands. You know, there's that old secular proverb, even, idle hands is the devil's workshop, right? Find something to do. There's just too many people that don't do anything. And I'm not talking about people that are old and are incapable. Even they do more than a lot of young people do nowadays. Find something to do. Like, I'm being serious. This is true wisdom. Find, get another job if you have to. Work more hours or something. And if you're not going to work, you know, so you can support more people or maybe the church, I don't know, then go do something for someone. Go, go do something for someone else. Like find, there's so many needs always. Go do something for someone else. Go be something, be there for someone else. I mean, it's like, I swear it's like foreign to people to even think that way. They don't even think that way. They think, oh yeah, free time. Hmm. And what do they do? They go find something to do for themselves. It's, it's foreign to people. It's, I actually believe it's foreign to Americans. That's what it is. We're culturally beset in this self-serving, grotesque culture that is all about self. I mean, everybody's got idols. Everybody wants to be like their idols. Everybody's buying clothes so they can look like their idols and doing their hair so they can look like their idols and getting this more stuff so they can be like their idols and drive the same cars and live in the same homes. And and it's, what are we doing? That's not, but through love, serve one another. That sounds like, but through love of self, serve self. And that's all the Spirit's saying. I was just on uh, line earlier, because um, one of my deepest pet peeves in ministry are guys that are like multi, multi millionaires. Some of these ministers are worth over $150 million. What? What? One guy says, I need $65 million for a new Gulfstream. What? And he preaches to people that are the, the average income is below the average American income. If just 200,000 of you would give 300 bucks, I can get my new Gulfstream. How is that possibly living for others? Have you ever heard of American Airlines? A coach class? Super saver fare? How about a 13 hour flight with a piece of steel in your, in your back? That's what I flew when I went, flew to India and Joey wouldn't give me a seat. He said, nope. He laughed the whole, I swear though, that was a, we were like this. You know, like most airlines now, it's like, oh, we got extra leg room and extra, no, they go the other way. Probably this wide. And I'm not kidding. It was like my seat was crooked, so my pelvis was off for 13 hours, and there was a piece of metal in my back that shot me over to one side where there was another piece of metal in my side. Great. That's what we got to do to be a missionary, right? Right. We're going to be good stewards of money. I mean, as it was, I don't know what I think those tickets were like really expensive. And those that's what you get for really expensive tickets. No. I think you guys should all get together and buy me a new Golf Stream. Come on, let's go. Pony up. All I got to do is do what some of these morons do and they teach a prosperity gospel. See what if you're anointed like me, then you get money like me. I'm living proof, see, of what I'm teaching you. So give me more money so I can keep teaching you about how prosperous you can be. That's not the freedom that Paul is writing about. That's not the prosperity in the Bible. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Unfortunately, most of us, if we're honest, learn the hard way. We ignore the Spirit's guidance, the Word as well, and we end up suffering. We suffer because God is opposed to the proud. So says Holy Scripture. And here's, I don't know how else to say this, it sounds so obvious up here on the board if god is opposed to you you have a real problem on your hands i'm serious if god is opposed to you you have a real problem and all these people these pastors like i'm talking about think they're getting away with it they're not the bible says there's wrath stored up for people like that and if they're teaching a false gospel they ought to be accursed I was thinking about that as well. If someone or I I sometimes wonder about how some of you receive the lessons I am given to teach. Even now I'm wondering what is going on in your head. Some of you are probably like, "Yep, I've been living for myself." Or no, I'm living for others. I don't know. But I wonder and from first-hand experience, I know some of you flat out reject what is coming from this pulpit because it offends you that I know, and I can even see it in your eyes in your body language even. but I hand such concerns over to God, for he is the one with the mighty hand, not I, up here on the board, first Thessalonians four: eight so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives. His Holy Spirit to you. I'm long past being offended by people taking offense with what I'm told to teach, what I'm asked to do on your behalf. If the truth offends you, I don't know what to tell you other than keep digging in the Bible and be delivered from that malady in your soul. Like the previous point on the board said, if God is opposed to you, you have a real problem on your hands. As a shepherd, I'm just trying to fight the good fight of faith for you. And one of the weaknesses that I see in my own congregation, and I don't normally do this, because it's like letting the cat out of the bag, and my fear is that now that you know that I know, you'll falsely change or put on a front or whatever, because that's what people do. One of the weaknesses that I see in my own congregation, as strong as we are in general, we have a wonderful congregation. As congregations go, it's a, I would consider it a strong congregation with a lot of faith. But there's a bit of emotionalism. There's a thread of emotionalism in here. Um, so as you saw on Thursday, I fight tooth and nail against such things. Because I don't want you to be clinging to an emasculated Jesus. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to succumb to the pressures of feminism in America that has bled into Christianity itself. That Jesus is some lovey-dovey, puffy, ear-wearing, you know, whatever. So I'm fighting the good fight up here on the board. Truth is nothing shy of immutable, making it infinitely impenetrable, unflappable, uncompromising. Soldiers fight for truth no matter what. When emotionalism leads, the truth is always softened. And God is misrepresented. And that is a problem. The truth is the truth is the truth. End of story. Don't care. God doesn't care, strictly speaking, if your ridiculous flesh is offended by the truth. Nor does He want you to play God and soften the blow when you try to evangelize someone with the truth. He just wants the truth to be known. And let someone's individual flesh deal with it. Let God the Spirit work on each individual with the truth. But emotionalism sidesteps that. Gets in the way. Softens the blow, so to speak. But that's the whole point. The blow isn't soft. The flesh hates the truth. Unless you dumb it down for it, unless you try to soften it. And it says, okay, okay, all right, all right. I'll listen now. No, listen to this God is holy, and you are not. And I'm just getting started. Listen to this. Oh, man. To fight for truth means to stir others to love and good deeds. That's in the Bible. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. That's what you're doing right now. I mean, that's why this church exists. It's so that we can be stirred up together, edified, built up for the work of service. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love. In good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We had a little pit stop here as well, if you remember, this past week, regarding another perverted worldly definition. That was for the word encouragement. So the Spirit gave us a little bit to chew on. Here as well, true encouragement, the lie, if someone's feelings get hurt, it cannot possibly be encouraging. That's a lie. The truth is, the word of God, no matter how offensive to human feelings, is always the best form of encouragement. It's always the best form of encouragement. Who cares if someone's offended? We're trying to encourage them to walk in the right direction. We're trying to encourage them to repent. We're trying to encourage them in the right direction. We do not give someone a false picture, then, of Jesus Christ just because the real person is offensive to them. That is not our job. Up here on the board, true encouragement. We are trying to get people to Christ, right? Why in the world would we ever want to give them a faulty compass? Why would we do that to them? Only the truth from the Word is able to orient a person correctly. John eight thirty two 32, up here on the board. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth. This is the truth. This is it. That's what we want to give people. And there's an awful lot about the sovereignty of God in there. And things like, things that are really distasteful to the flesh, like repentance, like denying self, like having to pick up your own cross, like true humility, like living for others. There's an awful lot of that in there, plainly stated. And that's what we should be after, not some watered-down version, because as Jesus Himself said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. True encouragement, then, is fundamentally rooted in truth, not lies. Case in point, we ought to be encouraging every unbeliever we ever meet to repent. We ought to be encouraging every unbeliever we ever meet to repent, which by its very definition implies a person understands the truth about their natural condition. Now listen, this is we're closing shop up on this repent what is repentance? So if you're going to tell an unbeliever that you, they need to repent, By, first of all, by its very definition, it implies a person understands the truth about their natural condition and not just that they have sinned in the past. I mean, it's pretty easy. Hey, hey, have you ever lied? Uh, Yeah, obviously. Okay, you're a sinner. That's a sin, right? Yeah. Well, then you're a sinner. Okay. That's not the game. Anybody can admit that they've sinned. And therefore, by definition, they're a sinner. You can just walk them to it, right? Big deal. You think that's what God's looking for? Have you sinned in the past? (laughs) I have. And you're a sinner. (laughs) You think that's what God's looking for? Someone to just admit that they've sinned in the past, and that's the extent of it? You really think that's the problem? That people don't know that they've sinned in the past? That's the problem? No, that's not the problem. That's part of the problem. That's a good place to start, I suppose. Not just that they have sinned in the past, making them sinners by admission, but they are, that they are born spiritually dead in their sins which is a very different conversation. There are a lot of so-called Christians out there that will admit they have sinned in their lives. It's not hard to get somebody to admit that they've sinned. But they haven't actually denounced their sinfulness, you see. They're not interested in that. They haven't truly repented. Because they're not interested in repentance. At least not the biblical version of it. And for some, they may rightly argue that the so-called little j, Jesus, that they've heard about doesn't really demand such things. Well, in my religion, in my church, the Jesus that I've learned doesn't demand such things. Well, then your church is not teaching the Bible. And maybe you ought to do as the bald guy tells his church members, read your own Bible. Find out for yourself. Have your own convictions before the Lord, before it's too late. Maybe you ought to do a little bit of that instead of taking everybody word for everybody's word for it, especially the ones flying around in $65 million jets. Or pumping out books and devotionals, making millions off of that stuff. Maybe you ought to stop listening to those people. So for some, they might argue, you know, the Jesus that I've heard doesn't really demand such things as repentance, at least not the way you describe it. This false Jesus that they believe in is often a feministic version of the real Jesus. Yet the real Jesus Christ shares a heart with God the Father, who has no qualms, with thrusting unbelievers still in their sins into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Same God. Last time I checked, Jesus Christ is God. And God's heart is never divided. As the Father goes, so goes the Son, and vice versa. I am the Father and I'm One. So said Jesus. Uh-huh. So if the Father has no problem casting creatures into the lake of fire for all of eternity, then neither does the sun. But you see, that's not very emotionally palatable, is it? Oh, you hurt my feelings. Too bad. We're at a funeral. Too bad. Uncle Jimmy said he could care less about Jesus Christ when he's here. You know where he's at right now? And it's not purgatory. Probably shouldn't go to very many funerals, huh? I have to bite my tongue so hard, it's unbelievable. Oh, they're in a, they're in a peaceful place right now. Are you sure? Are we sure about this problem? And we're giggling, but that makes me weep. If I'm not giggling right now, I'm weeping. I don't want, I don't want my worst enemies to go to, to the lake of fire. This isn't, a, this isn't a prison sentence that is done after 100 years. Do you you know what I'm saying? It's not done. It never ends. Ah, Heck with it. Too many people living for themselves to care about that. Big picture. The big picture perspective the Spirit's been getting at since the start of the Gospel Reload is that the Gospel is everything. I mean, this 30-part series on repentance is just another way of saying that the gospel is everything. And that everything that we live and breathe for, the, re- the very reason we're left here on earth is because of the gospel. When we understand this one simple truth, we have all the perspective we need. And then everything else in life just falls into place eventually. It doesn't happen right away. Some, we're all still learning. We're still learning. Every day I get up and I go, I cannot believe... How much more the gospel means to me today than yesterday. So we're still learning, it doesn't happen overnight. But I do realize this one fundamental truth that I'm sharing with you, and I'm hoping the Spirit uses this vessel to impart this wisdom to you the gospel really is everything, it's the centerpiece of our life, it's everything. And like I started class with, if we're focused on the gospel, well, we already have it. But we have a great commission to go spread it. If we're focused on that, there's no time left to focus and be hyper-focused on ourselves. And that's a good thing. Stated differently, if if perspective is everything, then the gospel is the lens we see through. The gospel is the very centerpiece to mankind's existence. Go to Romans five one. Romans five verse one. It's interesting how simple life gets when you toss out all that stuff that you're so preoccupied with, your work, your relationships, your kids, your dog, your cats, your gerbils, your your hot air balloons, your hair dryers, your fingernail polish, your toupees, your massages. I don't know. What is it that you guys preoccupy yourselves with? Video games. Anybody under the age of 30 is like video games? Yeah, video games. I spend all my time in front of video games. And Jesus is nowhere. But there is a Jesus from Mexico that I usually go online with when we battle it out on Battlefield. Jesus, what's up? Close enough, right? Jesus? You guys laugh, but that's sick. That's some, that's some people's God. Video games, they sit in front of that TV like it's, like it's God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Again, if perspective is everything, then the gospel is the lens we see it through. Up here on the board, the gospel is the very centerpiece to mankind's existence. The fact is that we are... Let me stop for a second. And when I say mankind, I mean everyone. Because here's the gospel. Do you understand? Here's the gospel. And the reason that some are going... One direction, and some are going the other direction, is because of the gospel. God said, here's the deal. You believe in my son, you get to be with me for all of eternity. I'm going to regenerate you. If you don't, you go to the lake of fire, and you die in your sins. The gospel is the centerpiece. Do you understand? It's everything. Even for unbelievers. It's because, because the gospel becomes the judgment, instrument of judgment that sentences them, rightly, to the lake of fire. So the gospel is the center of everything. Even though unbelievers will deny it till the day they die, and then die in their sins, whether they like it or not, as I've taught in the past, you can deny the truth, but it never changes it. The truth is always the truth. Whether you decide to accept it or not is not the point. And the truth is the gospel. And you're on one side or the other, and therefore it's the centerpiece of mankind's existence. The fact is that we are all born estranged from the one true holy God of the universe, and that He chose to become a man, like one of us. And He said, "I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me." John fourteen six. That's truth. Thinking about this as well, as you know, all right, let me say it this way. I ask you now, after all the scripture we've traversed together over the past three years or so, is God not merciful enough? Do we have to feminize Jesus to accommodate man? Is God not merciful enough? Is he somehow ungracious for demanding repentance that leads to life? Is that not gracious enough for us? Is he somehow unloving, as some suggest, because his own integrity demands the lake of fire receive those eternally separated from him? Is that somehow unloving? The answers are no, no, no. How dare his own creatures even think about questioning his mercy, grace, and love. Yet sinners do just that. For that is arrogance in a nutshell. Up here in the board. Arrogance in a nutshell. Question God and all of his authority. Do as Satan did. Undermine mercy, grace, and love. Lead others astray. Live for self. Posture oneself as righteous while bound in unrighteousness. That's arrogance in a nutshell. Question God and all of his authority. Look around. We live in a godless country. Everything about this country is to question authority, except for a few Still holding on. Still abiding. Still orienting to authority. Question God and all of His authority. Do as Satan did. Undermine mercy, grace, and love. It's not enough. You didn't do enough, Jesus, on the cross. You just didn't do enough because my arrogant Uncle Jimmy over here is going to rot in hell. Lead others astray. Start lying to them, maybe. Live for self, because you don't want to fight the good fight. It's too much trouble to give somebody the absolute truth, so you lie to them and you lead them astray. Posture oneself as righteous while bound in unrighteousness. That's all arrogance is, in a nutshell. To repent. Means to denounce all that we see on the board right now. Denounce it. It's garbage. And you can still repent. Repent isn't a, you have been given a repentant heart, remember. A changed heart if you're a believer. Some of you need to repent right now because you're bucking authority. You're being satanic. You're undermining mercy, grace, and love. You're leading others astray. You're living for yourself. And then on top of it all, you posture yourself as righteous when you're bound up in unrighteousness. To repent means to denounce all that we see on the board right now. It means to deny self, to be humbled before Almighty God, to possess a contrite heart. In our 30-part series, we have found the answer to our question in a multitude of ways but is a simple version of it. What is repentance? Repentance is grace. Repentance is merciful. And God grants it that it leads to life. Acts eleven eighteen 18, up here on the board. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now, one last thing that I I personally just noticed for the first time. This isn't some, oh my God, I discovered something new in the Bible. I don't do that. But I'm being honest. This is something that I just noticed for the first time. There's a definite article there. The repentance. Ten metanoian. The repentance repentance the definite definite article the implies singleness to repentance in other words there's only one repentance in view it's not a repentance not a version it's the same as always whether old testament or new testament there's always only been one true repentance that leads to life and that is what god granted to the gentiles and you know what It's the same repentance that led to life for the Jews. And then people before Abraham, when there weren't even any Jews. It's always been this repentance and faith. Those are the grace gifts from God, from a merciful, loving God. I will grant you repentance, and I will grant you faith. Saving faith. And you'll be justified by it. This isn't rocket science but some of these bozos that are, that are making millions of dollars writing books about dispensations and this, that, and these really long words that aren't even in the Bible. They tell you lies. Oh, no, 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 that kind of repentance was for the Jews. And the one that Jesus was talking about was another one. And the one Paul and the other guys in the New Testament wrote, that was yet another one. All I can hear is Satan. Satan. Are they really the same? Are they really the same? Let me confuse this a little bit, because God's not a god of confusion. He's not interested in confusing anybody. He says you're born a sinner. You need to repent, and I'll give you saving faith. Satan's like, no, no, shh. He just doesn't want. Very interesting, isn't it? A little artifact, a little definite article. Tame. The. It means an awful lot. It means there's only one repentance when it comes to salvation. And the reason I mention this is because some dispensationalists will argue that the Old Testament saints, Jesus, and the New Testament saints, etc., we're all talking about different repentances regarding salvation, And this is a lie meant to confuse even well-intentioned believers. So just some final food for thought. And in closing, I want to do one last survey of Holy Scripture now before we put this series to rest. We're going to do a little uh, survey here in Holy Scripture. I'm going to give you some principles and we're going to close up shop. (coughs) This has been, at the outset, our goal to get a definition for what is repentance. I mean, it should be obvious to you who gets to define it. It's the same person who gets to define everything. Good, that is God. But what is repentance? Repentance is often mentioned alongside of faith as an essential condition of conversion. Mark 1.15, 4.17, Acts 20.21, Hebrews 6.1. The relationship between repentance and faith, the sole instrument for justification, is so intimate. New Testament writers implied one when mentioning the other. Again, repentance is often mentioned alongside of faith as an essential condition of conversion. The relationship between repentance and faith, faith being the sole instrument for justification, is so intimate, New Testament writers implied one, when they mentioned the other. Go to Mark 115. Mark one we're just gonna survey scripture. I'm just gonna put some closure on this 30 part series. Although Scott's probably gonna be ridiculous on Tuesday and call it part thirty one in his review, because <laughs> he don't have any creativity. <laughs> I just kidding. Do what you gotta do. Mark 1:15 and saying, "The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." How about Matthew 4:17? Matthew 4:17. Remember the repentance that leads to life. There's only one. Matthew 4:17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go to Acts 20.21, where Paul is speaking. Acts 20.21 Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Acts 20.21 Paul speaking, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, two sides of the same coin mentioned in there. Of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How about Hebrews 6.1? Go there. Hebrews 6, verse 1. Hebrews 6, verse 1. And if you just read these if you just read these passages, you realize this isn't about just some person going, oh yeah, I've sinned. I think I've lied to my parents in the past. Ugh. If you say that makes me a sinner, okay, I'll admit it. Do you really think that's what's going on here? Or do you think there's some heartfelt objection to sinfulness? Hebrews 6 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, again, two sides of the same coin, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead in eternal judgment. Again, the point on the board, repentance is often mentioned alongside of faith as an essential condition of conversion, the relationship between repentance and faith—faith faith being the sole instrument for justification—is so int- uh, intimate. New Testament writers implied one when mentioning the other. Up here on the board, I've given you this in the past, but a person cannot turn from sin without turning to Christ, and vice versa. A person cannot turn from sin without turning to Christ, and vice versa. That is the correct way to think about repentance and faith. If God draws you to himself, remember, no one comes to God unless he draws them. Fair enough? He's also the granter of repentance that leads to life. He's also the granter of faith that justifies. Right? Okay. So do you think he's going to draw you halfway? If his intent is to save you. And if he's drawing you, he's going to save you because God never fails. And God doesn't do things half fill in the blank. He just doesn't. So if God draws you to himself, that's John 6, 44, and his plan is to save you, then you will be receiving both sides of the gospel coin, repentance and faith. You cannot receive only one side. You cannot receive only one side. Next point on what is repentance. Jesus characterized His own ministry as calling sinners to repentance. He spoke clearly of the impending judgment of God as looming over those who refused to repent. Luke 532, 13, 3, and 5. Go to Luke 532. Again, Jesus characterized his own ministry as calling sinners to repentance. He spoke clearly of the impending judgment of God as looming over those who refused to repent. Luke 532. Luke 532. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. No kidding. Is that just some person admitting that they've sinned in the past? Go to Luke 13.3. I love this one because it puts repentance front and center on the salvation block itself. Luke 13.3 I tell you no, and it's the same phrase in verse 5 if you see it, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus, up here on the board, Jesus characterized His own ministry as calling sinners to repentance. He spoke clearly of the impending judgment of God as looming over those who refused to repent. Next, Jesus included His call to repentance in the Great Commission itself. In the Great Commission itself. Go to Luke 24, 45. Jesus included His call to repentance in the Great Commission itself. Luke twenty four forty five. <clears throat> then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and He said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Do you see it? That repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the generations beginning from Jerusalem. I always wonder what people who claim that it's only faith Not repentance. Repentance is an afterthought. It's only faith for forgiveness of sins. It's only believing. Well, then Jesus must have been lying. Maybe he was smoking crack that day. Because it says right here in that repentance for forgiveness of sins. This is the Great Commission. He's saying, You're going to go out and do the same thing I did. The very first thing I said is repent. And of course, do you think he didn't understand faith? Do you think he didn't understand both sides of the coin? These things are so intimate to these people, to these evangelists, starting with the evangelist, Jesus Christ. They didn't always have to say every aspect of everything, it was implied. Of course it makes sense. Of course you can say it that way, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. But I thought it was just like this believe thing. I thought it was just, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it's just this believe thing. It's just this mental assent thing. You just have to, uh, okay, I guess I'm a sinner. Uh, You just have to believe, and, you know, it's just this. What's Jesus talking about then? He says repentance for forgiveness of sins. I'm going to go with Jesus' version. I'm going to go with Jesus' version. Jesus included His call to repentance in the Great Commission itself. Now, think about that. Put that in context. It makes total sense that those whom Jesus gave the Great Commission... Two, would honor his wishes, right? In other words, what do we see from his disciples after he ascended on high? What do we see from his disciples? Did they abandon repentance like some Christian churches do nowadays? Did they abandon the idea of repentance altogether because it was somehow distasteful? Oh, he's gone now, so maybe he won't. You know, the, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Was it like that? Well, the offensive guy, you know, the stumbling block, the rock of offense, he's gone. He's, he's, he's in heaven. Let's, let's, let's make it, let's save people on our own terms now. Did they do that? No way. They would have been petrified to do such a thing. Like I am, each and every time I've ever stood behind this pulpit, I'm petrified in a way, if that makes sense. Nervous that I'll screw something up. Did you follow? The magnitude... Of this position is overwhelming and I'm not anywhere near Jesus I don't have the I don't have the responsibility that the that the first Apostles the Apostles had I mean I have a piece of it but come on they would have been petrified to screw up the gospel and so they wouldn't have they wouldn't want to they wouldn't have you understand So it makes total sense that those whom Jesus gave the Great Commission would honor his wishes. So like their perfect teacher, the well-equipped students never wane from the offensiveness of the gospel. That same offensiveness, it seems, that contemporary Christianity has taken issue with. Hence the existence of watered-down gospels and their fruit. Things like whole religions and extra-biblical texts void of sovereignty, judgment, repentance, etc. The apostles of Jesus Christ would never wish to dishonor their teacher. So repentance was as intimate to conversion in their minds as it was within their masters. Up here on the board. What is repentance? Jesus' disciples obeyed the Great Commission, which, by Jesus' own account, included a call to repentance. Acts 2.38, 319, 1730. Go to Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38. Jesus' disciples obeyed the Great Commission, which, by Jesus' own account, included a call to repentance. So it makes total sense that we see in the book of Acts the apostles preaching the same gospel of course it makes sense because that's what their master had taught them acts 238 peter said to them repent and each of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins does that not just sound what jesus just said did we just read that from jesus's own mouth we just did it's the same statement maybe a little longer Does this just sound like Jesus, though? (laughs) In the Great Commission we just read? (coughs) Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why is he not talking about faith? Why is he not talking about forensics? Why is he not talking about stuff that, you know, Paul talked about in Romans when he was going into the greater detail of justification by faith. Why is he not talking? Because it's implied. It's implied. That's what's going on. Peter said, look, you've got to repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You can't repent. You can't draw near to God. Unless he also gives you saving faith. To him, they went to changeable. Repent. I don't know. Maybe the Spirit moved him to say repent. Because of context. I mean, how much context do we see? That's why context is so important in the Bible. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Doesn't the Holy Spirit only come to save people? Yeah. Where's the faith part then? It's implied! But he didn't say it. So should we just turn into it? Oh, let's do this then, guys. You ready? Since you're not going to buy me a $65 million Gulfstream... Let me just pervert the gospel and say faith is null and void. You only have to repent because that's what Jesus said. Let me play the other game then. Let me play an idiot in the other direction. Oh No, no, that would never fly because repentance is the one that's offensive to people. You know what I'm saying? All the little free gifts and the knickknacks and the ways you get to heaven, that's all the goody bag. But the repentance one is that's kind of the subtractive. That's the negative side of conversion. That would never fly. I'd probably have a smaller congregation than this in about a week. Well, if I did that, i hope everybody in here would be smart enough to run. Because then I'd lost my marbles and I shouldn't be standing here. But you know what I'm saying. I'm being facetious, right? Why, just, why not just run with one then? Why not create a whole nother church? The church of repentance? Because <laughs> it's foolishness. And it would never fly. But the other one does. How about Acts 3:19, Peter speaking. Again, Acts 3:19. <clears throat> Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How about Paul, go to Acts 17:30, Acts 17:30. <clears throat> Paul speaking here. also taught firsthand by Jesus himself, who wouldn't have screwed up his education either, who would have given him the same great commission and said, this is the same, the repentance is the same. He would have given the same, the same repentance to Paul that he gave the other apostles when he gave them the great commission Paul speaking, therefore, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Again, up here in the board, Jesus' disciples obeyed the great commission which by Jesus' own account included a call to repentance. So in closing, once you see all of the real evidence in the Bible, it is plain to see that when it comes to salvation, repentance is an essential component, along with faith that justifies, of course. You might even say that when delivering the good news, it is quite gracious to convey Jesus' thoughts on repentance, that leads to life. It's good news in the sense that we know how salvation works. Up here on the board, repentance and salvation. Watering down the gospel by denying repentance as essential to conversion not only confuses people, but it undermines God's communication with His creatures regarding their need to be saved. You're taking away the impetus. You're taking away the thrust, the reason that anyone would even consider the gospel in the first place. Why would you do that? Watering down the gospel by denying repentance as essential to conversion not only confuses people, but it undermines God's communication with His creatures regarding their need to be saved. If God's judgment on sinners isn't put on full display, what shall a person be motivated to repent from? What comes of salvation if the impetus no longer exists to be saved from death? As we've seen in Holy Scripture, repentance is pretty easy to understand once you have a proper perspective on it, and of course, a godly definition. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us truth that does set us free, a freedom that your Son made possible. Let us not dishonor him ever, dear Father, but rather let us honor him with every aspect of the Great Commission, keeping the gospel pristine the way he intended it. We ask for your spirit's guidance in doing so, and we ask for His blessings as well. Your blessings as we take all these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, he needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank. You.